You know, the great prayer of my life is that the Holy Spirit would come and ruin my, my life. You know, he, that he would come and ruin our services. If you know, if you know what I mean. Um, so, um, I have, I have a simple message to serve to you today. Simple bread is what I like to call it. Um, but it's interesting how the Holy Spirit draws you into certain words to give. And um, last week, Robin asked me to do another message on hospitality. And I was a little bit, secretly, I was a little bit bummed out that he asked me about that because I felt like I had spent a good amount of time on it already. Um, but I agreed to it since, you know, he's my boss and all. So. Um, and I was just, uh, trusting the Lord that he would, he would lead me into something fresh and, uh, and he did. And, uh, interesting thing last Monday, Eric Hurchin sent me a, he sent me a video link, uh, and there was a, there's a theologian named Walter Brueggemann who was just giving this little, little talk and he used a phrase and it. The phrase, it floored me. It really, it knocked me over. And, and I had never heard this phrase. I, didn't, I had never heard God spoken of this way before. And it really, it drew me in. Um, but he used the phrase, God's neighborliness or the neighborliness of God. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word neighbor, I always think of Fred Rogers singing, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And so because of that, there's a little bit of a, you know, kind of like cheesy, schmaltzy sense about that word, neighbor. And so, so I began to think about what, what does it mean to be a neighbor? I mean, the scriptures talk about it often and, um, you know, just from looking at the scriptures, we could probably agree that your neighbor is, is somebody other than yourself, right? It's somebody other than you. It is the other that you encounter in life. And um, so, so, you know, Robin asked me to speak on hospitality. I hear this thing about the neighborliness of God. And then, and then this weekend, I did a whirlwind trip to um, Holland, Michigan, of all places. Literally, I was there on the ground for 36 hours. I, hey, somebody's from Michigan around here. All right, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I flew in early Saturday morning, did a sh- or Friday morning, did a show on Friday night. And uh, the show was awesome. It was a house show. There was about 60 college-age kids packed into about 150-square-foot space, all sitting on top of each other, and it was a great time. Um, and then the show was over, everybody went home, and then the hosts, the, the people whose home it was, they, they went across the street, and they knocked on the people's door across the street, and invited them over to the house. I didn't know this was going on, I was sitting on the couch. And, um, and so, these three strange individuals walk into the home, and I say that they're strange because they didn't look or sound like anybody that had been in the house previously or were in the house presently. And they 
were, uh, they were rough around the edges, you might say. Um, all three of them sounded very hoarse, like they had spent a lifetime smoking cigarettes. They were missing teeth. Um, few of them had NASCAR t-shirts on, I and mean, nothing against that. But, but, you know, in my world, that would be the other, you know. That, those are the per- people that I don't necessarily know, you know. Um, so, so the interesting part was is that the inviting in of the other into their home was very easy. But the work part was when we were all sitting in the living room with these three new people, the, the work part was how do you relate to somebody that's not like you? How do you enter into a, a relationship with somebody that has a different history than you, who has a different view of the world than you, who uses a different language than you. That's the interesting part of the kingdom, of working in the kingdom of God. Amen? So I was struck by that. I was paying attention to it. I felt like the Lord was speaking to me through that. And um, so I thought, you know, the Lord might be directing this Um, as I had originally hoped. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read a passage out of Luke 10. It's a familiar passage to you. Um, Go to verse 25. Many of you know the story. Hopefully all of you know the story. But if you don't know, this is your first time hearing this, welcome. This is going to be great. All right. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read from the law? He answered, this is the lawyer answering, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Short side note, it's really interesting that Jesus didn't invite the lawyer to invite him into his heart, right? The lawyer asked, how can I have eternal life? He says, what does the law say? And then he takes him on this journey. He says, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So in our world, you might say he was the lead pastor of the church. The pastor was walking down the road, saw the man on the side of the road, and kept going. So likewise, a Levite, who you could say is the worship leader, the worship leader comes along, and when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by the man. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine into his wounds. Then he put him on his own animal, He brought him to an inn, and he stopped and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, or two coins, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So if you're taking notes, the title of this message today is The Impractical, Inefficient Call to Hospitality. All right? The impractical, inefficient call to hospitality. So the thing about being a neighbor to somebody, becoming a friend to somebody who is not like you, is that it will waste your time and it will cost you money. It will waste your time and it will cost you money. And if you're like me, those are two things that you don't have a lot of, right? So because of the the way of the world or the grain that the world is running in, which demands from us most of our time and it costs us money, we spend most of our lives pursuing those things to the detriment of being good neighbors to the other. Okay? You with me so far? I told you this was simple stuff, all right? So the time-wasting, money-losing call to neighborliness, it looks like this. So if we look at the story in Luke chapter 10, the Samaritan did a few things that the priest and the Levite did not, all right? The Samaritan went out of his way toward the person who needed help. It says that the, the, the priest and the Levite, they crossed over to the other side of the road to avoid helping the man. Probably they were on their way to temple. Probably they were on their way to offer up prayers to God. They were probably on their way to have a service of some sort. Okay? They probably had good reasons for stepping over to the other side of the road. The Samaritan went out of his way. The Samaritan wasted his time. Okay, I imagine uh, from the story we can see that he was a man of means. He obviously had some, some form of wealth. He had money and he had an animal. He was probably on his way to do business somewhere. But he cut short his own schedule. He stopped within the, the, the framework of his schedule and stepped out of the schedule to help this hurting person. Okay? And he wasted his time and he lost his money. All right? So what I gather from this, this passage is really what Jesus is doing all throughout the Gospels is that he's showing us the, the true way to be human. Okay, where the, where the priest and the Levite, they thought that they were pleasing God by making sure that they didn't touch a, a dead body. You know, in, in, in the Levitical priesthood, you were not allowed to even come near a dead body. So really, in essence, they were being good uh, Israelites by stepping over to the other side because you're really not supposed to go near a dead body. And Jesus is saying to these folks, listen, you thought about me one way, you thought about God one way, but really, here is a better way. Here's a better way to be a human being. Okay? Okay. So, here are a few things that happen. <clears throat> 
so neighborliness, that's a strange word, but I like it. I've started using it since I heard Brueggemann say it. Neighborliness, hospitality, and caregiving, they happen when, they happen when we stop being afraid to go near the bloody body. All right, let me say that again. All of this caregiving stuff that I'm talking about, it happens when we stop being afraid to go near the bloody body. Or, in other words, it happens when we stop being afraid of entering into the other, going near somebody who is not like us, who doesn't look like us, who doesn't talk like us, who doesn't believe like us. All right? So, and, you know, bloody body, that's a metaphor for a lot of different types of situations. It's, it's not just um, people that are different, but it can, be, it can be situations that are awkward or strange. Um, Amy and I, we have a friend who is um, who's sick, and this person has been sick for many, many months and she is bedridden. And, you know, people who are sick, they often find themselves isolated. They, they're, in, they're in places where they're not in regular fellowship. They're not always together having their emotional needs met by friends because they don't have access to those people, right? You and I gain a lot from having friendships and relationships with one another. It's part of being a human being. We need people to have conversations with us so that we know people care about us. And so if you have somebody who is isolated on a sick bed, you know, that can be a Difficult thing to enter into, you know, occasionally Amy goes and sits in her bedroom and sits by her side and just talks with her. And it's not always easy because she's tired and she doesn't have a lot to give in terms of conversation, but it's very meaningful to her just to have somebody be there with her in a place that's very vulnerable. Okay. But a lot of times because we like things neat and orderly and fresh smelling and um, together we don't sometimes enter into those places, right? I mean, that's just the way we're wired. And the, the call, the call is really a call to action, that we stop being afraid of those types of situations and we freely give ourselves and waste our time and waste our money and resources to go into those places where those people are. Sometimes we, we have this notion that we can help people best by praying for them, okay? And I feel that prayer is essential to our life as believers. We must be interceding for one another. We must be interceding for the needs of one another. Because the fact is, there's so much of what we need that only God can answer. Amen? But I believe this. There are things that you and I need that we can only get from each other. There are things that you and I both need that God can't do for us, if that makes sense. 
There are things that you can do for each other and for people that you see who need help. There's things that you can do for those people that is much more powerful than even your prayers. Don't stop praying, but don't use your prayer as an excuse not to be the embodiment of the answer to that prayer for a person. So I said this before, but the priest and the Levite were, they were probably on their way to church because they had a view of God that he needed to be pleased and that offering prayers is the most important thing. And prayer really is important. We don't want to ever stop. But I had this encounter with Jesus a few years ago. My, my Christian tradition is Pentecostal charismatic and I was, I'm rooted in that. I will always be that. I love the Holy Spirit. I love extravagant worship services. Uh, my wife and I, we prefer demonstrative worship to anything else. Um, and, and one of the cries that was always coming up in our churches or in our songs was that we wanted to see the glory of God. And we even sang a song like that this morning. And there really is a glory that belongs to Jesus that you should want to see. He really does manifest his glory. I believe this. When the saints gather, there's a glory that comes from heaven that you just can't get anywhere else. Right? But one day I was in prayer with the Lord and I was just crying out to the Lord, Lord, I I really want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. I had heard about people seeing glory clouds and I was just hungry to have that experience. And I heard the Lord say to me, Andy, do you want to see my glory? I said, Lord, you know I do. Absolutely. Without a doubt. He said, here's what you do. You go across the street, you knock on your neighbor's door And when he answers it, you look him straight in his eyes. That's where my glory resides. So I had kind of a a mindset or a paradigm that the priest and the Levite had. Where I was going to the temple to pray. I was going to the temple to worship. I was going to see the glory of God in the house of the Lord. And I didn't want to be defiled by any dead bodies on the road to Jerusalem. But really, the pathway to that man laying on the side of the road for the priest and the Levite was a path directly to the glory of God. And they missed their opportunity to have an actual encounter with Jesus. I mean, what does Jesus say later on in the scriptures? He said, when you give a cup of water, when you visit me in jail, when you gave me your cloak... When you did this to the least of these, you actually did this unto me. He totally revolutionized the whole framework of what it meant to be with God and how to get to him. We've always been trying to climb Jacob's ladder to get up into heaven, into heavenly places, and to go into these spiritual experiences, which I totally believe in. I'm all for spiritual experiences, man. I don't think you should live your life without supernatural encounters with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We should always have those things in our lives. But I believe that those things 
give us strength. They empower us. They embolden us. They enlarge the inside of us so that we can enter into those places that might not seem quite as glorious. It's 1130. Gosh, darn it. Oh, I've got like four more pages. (laughs) So let me... Let me close this way. I'll have to do another part of this series, I guess. So I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell on myself, okay? I have lived in a, a subdivision for the last three and a half years of my life, and this is the truth. I don't know any of my neighbors. <laughs> Is anybody else like that? Like, like it's, it's, it's pretty impractical to be honest with you. I, I would say that Amy and I live a very frantic life. We, we have a busyness about our life that seems to keep us from stopping on the side of the road to meet anybody at all. And my prayer for, for myself and for my family is that we would choose to resist the spirit of the age, which is really a call to a frantic lifestyle. We live in a society where a frantic lifestyle is what everybody is living. And I believe as Jesus followers, we are being called to have our lives shaped to look like Jesus. That is to go the opposite grain of the world. And if you are so busy that you don't have time to spontaneously stop and help somebody in need, you might need to think about adjusting what you're doing. It's a very practical outworking of this. You might have too much going on. You might be a part of too many activities that are legitimate and good. But what I believe is that Christians need to start practicing the subversive practice of rest. Or as the scripture would call it, the Sabbath. Time to do nothing in your life is more important than anything else that you do. If you don't have time to do nothing in your life, you won't have time to do something. If you don't have time to do nothing, when it gets time to do something, you'll resent the something. If you don't have time to do nothing, when the spirit is beckoning you towards something, you won't have the physical energy to do that thing. And I believe our creator believes in us becoming whole beings. He cares about our emotional health. He cares about our physical health. He cares about our mental health, our spiritual health, and he cares about that stuff for the people in our world too. And the people in the world that we encounter cannot get to that stuff unless you bring it to them. And you can't bring it to them unless you have it to give to them. And you won't have it to give to them unless you receive it from the Holy Spirit. And the way you receive it from the Holy Spirit is to stop and rest and have nothing to do. So I want to end with this Dallas Willard quote. I love Dallas Willard. Anybody know Dallas Willard? You should read his books. He's a really good man. He says this, In God's order, nothing can substitute for loving people. So your worship services are not more important than loving people. Your good preaching, your good deeds, all of the spiritual activities, the best conference in the world 
does not trump you stopping on the side of the road and loving somebody that needs help. Everybody agree with that? You should agree with that. And we define who our neighbor is by our love. We make a neighbor of someone by caring for him or her. So we don't define a class of people who will be our neighbors and then select only them as the objects of our love. Jesus deftly rejects the question, who is my neighbor? And substitutes the only question really relevant here. To whom will I be a neighbor? And he knows that we can only answer this question case by case as we go through our days. So I would just leave you with this thought. Ask the Lord to help you shape your life that you can act spontaneously and be deliberate in your caregiving to the people around you in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and pray and we'll, we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of the bread and wine that you're serving us. We thank you for your spirit and we thank you that as we leave this building today that your spirit goes with us. We pray a blessing of courage and hope and hopefulness upon every believer present today. We pray a blessing. We speak a blessing over every family, every single person, every worker, every student, every artist, every creative, every entrepreneur and businessman, every man, woman, and child. We speak the blessing of the Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray all of this. Amen. Love one another. Be dismissed.